Howdy, welcome to another episode of Cannon Calls. I'm your host, Jake McAtee. And this week, I had the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Jason M. Baxter. He recently wrote a book called The Medieval Mind of C.S. Lewis, How Great Books Shaped a Great Mind. It's very, very good. I highly recommend it. If you go to his website, jasonmbaxter.com, you can get it. He'll sign it and send it to you. Highly, highly recommend the book. One book in particular from the Canon shelf that I thought was extremely relevant to this discussion is actually one of my favorite books from Canon Press, Angels in the Architecture by Douglas Wilson and Doug Jones. The Middle Ages and Reformation began a conversation about truth, beauty, and goodness. Modernity and postmodernism tragically interrupted that conversation, and modern evangelicalism has often simply echoed the hollowness of our modern culture, but we can do better. In stark contrast to that world, Christianity presents a glorious vision for culture and the vision of a world with truth, beauty, and goodness built into the very molecules of the universe. You heard it from me. I truly believe this is the most underrated book at Canon Press. It's my favorite book at Canon Press, Angels in the Architecture, A Protestant Vision for Middle Earth. Go get it. It's now available on audio. Head to mycanonplus.com. You can listen to it, crank through it, read by Wade Stotts. You will absolutely enjoy this book. Without further ado, meet Dr. Jason Baxter. All right, now welcoming on special guest, Dr. Jason M. Baxter. He's an associate professor of fine arts and humanities at Wyoming Catholic College. He's the author of an introduction to Christian mysticism, The Infinite Beauty of the World, Dante's Encyclopedia and the Names of God, and A Beginner's Guide to Dante's Divine Comedy. But today, he's on talking to us about his brand new book from IVP, The Medieval Mind of C.S. Lewis, How Great Books Shaped a Great Mind. Dr. Baxter, thanks for coming on, sir. Thanks. I'm so happy to be here. Really grateful. Can you tell us uh, how did how did you end up to like coming to this book? What, what, are you just a, are you a huge C.S. Lewis fan? Are you a big medieval fan? How, how did you thread the needle for you personally? How, how did the book thread the needle for you personally? Yeah, you know, I'm sure, like a lot of your listeners, you know, grew up as a teenager uh, reading C.S. Lewis, um, especially his his sermons and his nonfiction and admired him. I thought that Lewis was my entry into all these things that I, I vaguely felt, but never really had any, any terms for. Um, I used to, this is a little, little side story, it, you know, growing up in, uh, in the suburbs of the South, I used to think that in some sense, the, the image of high culture was that fake mural in Barnes and Nobles of all the writers up there at the cafe. And <laughs> I, I, used, I used to wonder what they were talking about, but was sure that if I could listen, then I could know what it was I was actually wanting. But I think, you know, for, you know, for a kid from, from the suburbs, from the South, Lewis was this unbelievable kind of uh, entry point into this world of ideas and history and devotion and a world in which basically the mind and the heart were were married, remarried again, sort of having been divorced in modernity. Anyway, so I loved him. I loved him as a teenager. Um, 
I then went on to uh, study classics at University of Dallas. I then went on to study Dante in Italian and medieval studies at Notre Dame. And my work there was to connect Plato to Dante, which is more interesting than people might think because Plato wasn't translated until the 15th century into Latin. And so I think that Dante is more platonic than he knows, uh, but how that happens is a kind of, you know, an interesting um, scholarly puzzle. And while I was working on my dissertation, I also had, you know, my, my first, my eldest kids were, were little at that point uh, in grade school. And I was reading to them Narnia for the first time. And when I was sort of revisiting that after years and years of distance and writing my dissertation, I kept thinking, wait a minute, eh? this sounds an awful lot like what I was trying to write in my, uh, in my doctoral dissertation today. How could that possibly be the case? And then when I turned back to Lewis's own scholarship, to my astonishment, realized not only that he had got to all the most interesting things that I had hoped to say myself about the Middle Ages, but that his own scholarly background was everywhere present in his, in his fiction and in his apologetical works just beneath the surface. So that's when I could, this idea, I think about a decade ago, formulated itself in my mind and just kind of a, a trenchant, piquant statement that Lewis wasn't successful as a writer of apologetics and children's fiction and other forms of fiction, despite his day job, but because of it. Now, so getting to that and, and maybe even connecting it to your thesis, you call Lewis the British Boethius. Can you, so to help us understand that, can you tell us a little bit about who Boethius was and what he did? Absolutely. Sixth century philosopher, um, Roman patrician, called the last of the Romans, the first of the medievals, has this has these incredible ambitions to restore the golden age. He wants to get back to the age of Caesar Augustus, the golden age of Latin literature. He loves his Virgil, he loves his Seneca. He wants to, both in terms of ethics and life, as well as in terms of letters and learning, restore the golden age. Um, but unfortunately, Boethius lives in the sixth century, a world in which is being taken over by Theodoric, the Ostrogoth. He sort of leaves in place the, the, the Senate, the Roman Senate, in order to sort of use its clout, but begins to actually take, his guys are sort of actually taking over the, uh, the government, his, his swamp, <laughs> swamp of Ravenna uh, is actually um, doing the real, real ruling. And so Boethius gets into trouble because he's a Greek reader. And Theodoric has deep suspicions about the Byzantine Empire and those who could be associated with any way. And seemingly some of, some of Boethius's enemies on trumped up charges of treachery get Boethius locked up and ultimately assassinated or executed. And so Boethius has one or two years in which he can sort of pack in a lifetime of incredible intellectual ambition. He wanted to translate all the works of Plato into Latin, which wasn't done for another thousand years after him. He wanted to translate all of the works of Aristotle into Latin. And then he wanted to write this gigantic summa in which he would have reconciled Plato to Aristotle and then reconciled the liberal arts and philosophy to theology. In a, he wanted to do what Raphael paints in the School of Athens um, and couldn't do it. 
And so he has to write this um, piece of what people would now call prison literature. Um, it called the Constellation of Philosophy, in which he packs in two to three decades of failed intellectual ambition into a really beautiful human, both sort of complaint, but also attempt to quickly sketch out what he would have done if he had had three decades to do it. Now, for Lewis, this is important because Boethius, understandably, in this kind of house arrest situation, didn't have access to his library, didn't have access to, you know, his, his scholarly books. And so he wasn't able to focus on the fine distinctions, the fine grade distinctions between this ancient writer and that ancient writer. Boethius, under the constraints of this situation, had to just describe what all of these writers had in common. The, the broad unifying principles. Lewis analogously thought of himself as a kind of modern Boethius in the sense that his world was being taken over by a modern barbarism, as he called it. Um, of course, not this time an invasion from Scandinavians, but rather a, um, a not a top-down invasion, but a bottom-up invasion in which democratic, technologically addicted, machine-using man and woman was were gladly cutting themselves off from the past and being proud of it. And that's a kind of new grassroots barbarism. And so Lewis felt that in his day, he didn't have the luxury of making the fine distinctions of, you know, of articulating this school against that school, but just wanted to save, uh, I guess, if he calls it mere Christianity in this context, you could call it mere Europe mirror Western Europe. At one point, he calls it Old Western, as if it were you know, some sort of unifying language. But that kind of ethical, psychological worldview, the, 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 bare, the bare minimum, the basics, which would have united a Virgil to a Gregory the Great, to a Jane Austen, to one of the pharaohs, but the basic sort of approach to life. That's what Lewis was so interested in. And that's what in my book I call the long middle ages. And that's the point of contact between Lewis and Boethius. Yeah. Let, can, can you say a little bit more about that? So I imagine there's someone out there when they hear the medieval mind of C.S. Lewis, they're like, wow, was he actually like punk rock? Like, is this like brutal torture chambers or like, uh, you know, maybe even like the Dungeons and Dragons role-playing games or, or something like that. What, what do you mean? And what is C.S. Lewis after with that qualifier on mind, the medieval mind. Right. Yeah, I think uh, that Lewis jokes more than once that if you do say Middle Ages, what you evoke is this misty blend of, uh, of knights and dragons and castles and uh, sort of thing. But that's not the sort of Middle Ages that Lewis was in. In fact, Lewis says the funny thing is, it's actually probably the exact opposite that quite apart from being this, this period of weird, you know, superstitious ritual, dark magic kind of stuff. It was actually a very academic time um, in which he says the most characteristic things made in the middle ages were Thomas Aquinas Summa, um, the Gothic cathedrals. He's thinking of something like Salisbury cathedral in England. And Dante's comedy. But then he adds something really interesting that we could also put into this category, their image, their science, and how they constructed the world into a world image, almost as if it were a work of art. 
not in the sense that it was a fiction, but in the sense that they worked so hard to gather vast amounts of data and to reconcile it into a harmonious world picture as if the cosmos itself had been made into a great symphony, um, a great complicated Mahler symphony. Mahler's always on my mind when I think about um, the medieval cosmos because it reconciles all kinds of strange and disparate things. You know, Mahler said that in my symphonies, you will find a little bit of everything. And analogously in the, in the medieval cosmos, you have these angelic intelligences, which are, which are moving the stars, which are moving the planets. Um, you have these, uh, th this idea of these aerial spirits, um, like you find in Shakespeare, right, with Ariel. Um, you have all these sort of things blended together. And oh no, Dr. Baxter, very if the very natural cosmos were a kind of temple or or kind of great cathedral, as I sometimes say, that for the medieval mind, physics is a subcategory of theology. Here's how I put it in the book. Standing in the medieval cathedral gives you a kind of x-ray vision of the world. Meaning is everywhere, full and rich. The material world has been gathered to a saturation point. In a cathedral, then, the spiritual world feels like it's leaking in, and our response is to want to soar up and through and out. Simply look up any of the black and white photographs of Salisbury Cathedral, and you'll see what I mean. That's beginning to go in the direction of, of what it felt like to be medieval. And we could talk about the ethical consequences of that if we, if we wanted to, but we've taken a, a step in that direction. Yeah, well, I'm curious to know, uh, I, I thought about this as I was reading your book, and, and just a little bit I, I've, that I've read on Lewis with uh, the, like the discarded image, for example, of like, what is it to give moderns a sense of uh, just reimagining the world, I suppose. Um, so I, I think of like when Lewis starts, I believe it's a discarded image or one of the essays in there. He says, uh, the difference between a modern man and a medieval man when they look up into the stars. Um, and I think about, you know, in the last decade, there's been a few movies that are up in, uh, you know, our modern space. And it's like very chilling and very yes. horrifying, you yes. know, and you see, uh, Oh, it's not Bruce Willis, but it's, I forget, one of those handsome devils that's just floating out and, you know, he loses the cord and and it's just absolutely terrifying. And Lewis would sort of relish that because it would make his point perfectly that that's not how medieval man would uh, imagine, would imagine the heavens. Um, right. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, how would, what's the best way to sort of get modern man to, to see that like the, how you look at the world is not always how people have done that. Yeah. Interstellar versus Dante. That's right. Yes. Right. Yes. Um, yeah, I think, yeah, Lewis was so keen on that, wasn't he? And obviously he plays around with that and out, out of the silent planet. Right. That Ransom's introduction into space is this huge surprise and that he's, He's going into this place of saturated meaning. Um, and Lewis tries to get at that, oh, in a, in a way that, uh, that really closely, I think, borrows from, uh, from Dante. Um, but Lewis tries to get at it with a kind of light. It's an excess of light. 
But he seemingly is sort of playing around with this idea that uh, paradoxically, it's a kind of invisible light, um, which is very something. This is something very much what like Beatrice has to explain to Dante when they come into Paradiso. You have now come into the realm of intellectual light, she says, as if creating this kind of oxymoronic, par- you know, uh, paradox that this is invisible light. Right. This is a kind of you know uh, healthy gamma ray radiation that makes you feel nourished both in your intellect and in your body. Right. Lewis does a very similar thing at the end of Voyage of the Dawn Treader, where the light becomes purer and purer. But it's also like they're floating on liquid light and they're drinking it and it's nourishing them. And so that they use one or two words and mean 30 or 40. And so they're growing quiet because they're growing nourished and whole and kind of returning to their interior cores. Um, Yeah. So I think Lewis loves to make that point. He says that when modern, modern human being goes out to a dark field and looks up, um, we say to ourselves, wow, what an infinite cavernous, black, empty space. I wonder if there's anything else out there other than chemical reactions and rocks. Right. Right. We sort of feel lost. Like we're standing on the, um, you know, on the edge of an ocean on a, on a gloomy, cloudy day in you know, like Northern California and <laughs> in the summertime, right? right. It's, that's the sort of sensations that are evoked for us. Whereas he was insistent that when medieval man looked up, what he, he felt like he was almost sort of looking through the window at a great banquet to which he had not been invited. And it was so happy and festive and warm. And there's so many different types of things to eat. The real life was out there. Real life was up there. And thus on earth, he felt in some sense exiled. But to the extent he could, he wanted to participate in his heart and his mind and in his character in that banquet, which was up there. But real meaning was up and out and I think when you when we read Paradiso with with that really great Lewis insight in mind, then we can kind of restore what a what a big deal it was for uh, for Dante's original readers to to do this. I mean, it's it's hard for us now to read Paradiso. In fact, my favorite statement on this was a um, Slate article a couple of years ago entitled "Does anyone read Dante's Paradiso?" <laughs> but if we just remember that you know this Lewis insight. We're getting closer and closer and closer to this, uh, to this invisible, quote unquote, intellectual light as we begin to near the periphery of the created world. So, so being at the center of the universe in a medieval cosmology did not mean um, a, sort, a, a point of pride where it all revolves around us. You're saying... Uh, it was actually like everything was going, everything fun and beautiful and bright was happening out there. We were the silent planet. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. We are the silent planet that um, imperfectly participated in the joyous symphony of meaning in which beauty and goodness and truth were a unified integrated act and it brought our hearts, or it brought, it brings the quote unquote hearts of those who participate in it, because we're thinking many angelic intelligences. It brings the quote unquote hearts this sort of great joy, but they're also, they're, their personalities are integrated. 
Whereas here we, we pursue all these things in little bits and pieces and side projects and we do academical things. Um, but academics and professors are, you know, uninterested in the conditions in which they live, or we have artists, but they're sort of uninterested in, in the truth. And we have, but we, and we have good people who are anti-intellectual and think that, you know, um, professors are just a bunch of liberals who wish to deceive you. Right. We're just, we're so fragmented, um, down below, but Lewis thought that that modernity sort of amped up this process of disintegrated fragmentation. And but out there, at least for the for the medieval mind, you could get a glimpse of your best self, in which your will and your mind and your heart and your actions were harmoniously integrated. One awesome one awesome thing that I thoroughly enjoy about Lewis is this stuff. This stuff uh, could be considered a hobby of his. He loved it. He loved studying it. He memorized great deals of it. Um, but it was also, this has a very fascinating um, touch point to his conversion um, and sort of that modern uh, versus medieval concept plays a role in that as well. Do you mind talking to us about that? How, how did all this uh, get get swept into that famous conversation with him and Lewis, and and I forget the other man's name. There was a third, I believe, correct? Yes, yes. You're talking about the 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 famous wonderful scene when they're at in the Cambridge, uh, oh, sorry, the Maudlin College Deer Park in Oxford. Yes, yes, yeah. So I think I think the the key is to understand this idea of evil enchantment. And this concept of Lewis, which I spend I spend some time on, um, in which he says, okay, so just going back to our you know cathedral-like world image, the ethical consequences of that is that tell me if this makes sense. That chivalry makes chivalry has meaning. Chivalry makes sense. That that type of world, because it itself is saturated in a sense of longing, in a sense of hunger for the beautiful that the human heart sort of the good human heart falls into that magnetic pole and itself is sort of driven by a hunger for beauty. And thus our ethical life flows out from a sense of the vision of beauty, right? If that's the ancient world, now fast forward to modernity in which we don't believe the world is iconic. It's just a bunch of um, large chemical reactions or large physical masses moving according to predictable universal gravitational laws. It's like a, it, it's a big machine which doesn't think and doesn't feel. It's just inert passive matter waiting for reactions to happen to it, either collisions or chemical reactions, right? A place um, where some space sense. makes sense. Exactly. That world doesn't mean anything. It just is. My favorite experiment to do with my students is to say, what does the periodic table mean? And some of them are smart and capable of explaining to me why the periodic table is arranged in the columns that it is. Like, well, you know, Dr. Baxter is based on, on the um, nuclear structure of different types of atoms, right? And how many, you know, how many neutrons and protons are counterbalanced with the electrons, I said, no, no, I, I get it. I understand the, the rubric for organization, but 
but what does it mean? You know, why is it that this way as opposed to another? Why aren't there more or fewer of these elements? And then when they begin to understand what I'm asking, they just look at me in disbelief and almost, you know, comedic uh, disdain saying, Dr. Baxter doesn't mean anything. It's just science. If you can utter those sentences together, it doesn't mean anything. It's just science. Then you know that you're a modern, <laughs> right? So in, in the modern world, if you did have what Plato would call that, that spiritual movement of eros, right? Um, as he describes in the Phaedrus and the symposium, if you did you know, suffer from those kinds of deep spiritual impulses, they would seem out of place, right? Like uh, Dorothea and Middlemarch, right? You, you, they, don't, they don't make sense anymore in our modern world. And that's how Lewis puts it, that inner ache, that wound in a, in a world that has suffered the mechanization and mathematization of the world picture. Those types of inner longings don't make sense anymore. And thus you're, you're tempted to dismiss them as if you were under an evil enchantment. And I was able to show that in this, the enchantment scene by the witch and the Prince Caspian scene um, is, I'm sorry, in the silver chair scene, is indeed in part Lewis thinking about this process of evil enchantment in which their own sort of memories of like Puddleglum and friends, their own sort of memories of Narnia, at which the witch is trying to suppress are analogous to our sort of deep desires for the beauty upon which the, for which the world hungers, which don't make sense in modernity, just like their desires for Narnia, quote unquote, don't make sense when they're underground in this cave-like structure. So that, of course, is, you know, as your listeners will know, is what Lewis describes in Surprised by Joy. That he's sitting around as a teenager and as a, you know, as a, a, a young man in his 20s, reading the old books, which are based on these, on the sort of the pursuit of this secret breath of, of holiness. He felt that and he wanted that. But then he lamented that he, that it, it, he couldn't have it anymore. He just had to grow up and become modern and believe Galileo and Newton and friends and just, just become, you know, at best a sort of, you know, um, a, a good little agnostic with, uh, you know, with humane inclinations. And that, of course, was the debate in him. So for, in some sense, the, the preliminary debate about his own conversion was for him analogous to this great world debate that his own kind of life story was a microcosm of, of Western history. And then, of course, in the end, he says he has this incredible conversation with Tolkien and Dyson, I believe. And they say, you realize that Christianity is a myth. It's just a true myth. And that for Lewis was this sort of incredible, incredible moment where he could, he could think of myth not as a false story that ancients used to tell, but rather as an imaginative vehicle, which was just gesticulating and gesturing at that which it had difficult, which not just had difficulty, but it was impossible to explain fully into words. That was the breakthrough. Yeah, it's 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 beautiful. It's uh, it's something very cool, and and just the sort of. Uh, you mentioned just the microcosm of like what the world stage happening in Lewis of something where everything I know to be true is cold and ugly, but everything I love is 
uh, is beautiful and these don't match up um it's it's it was very honest and it and i think um something that he that kind of honesty he kept up through the rest of his life obviously um yes. in terms of uh i'm very curious as i was reading there's a lot written on lewis i'm sure you felt the weight of that um there are, are tons of books. I'm very curious, um, while you were writing, if you had in mind um, like how your books books would function in relation to others. Did, did, did you write in that capacity at all in terms of like, uh, I, I'm attempting to sort of wed this author and this author, or um, did anything like that play, play a role in you writing this book? Good, cool question. Yeah, no one's asked me that. I think... I think I, as a, as a writer, I write with a lot of uh, what has been called anxiety of influence <laughs> that I'm, I'm terrified that uh, someone else has already said what I want to say and said it better. Sure. Um, but then I've been writing long enough too, that I realize that if you're, if you write with, if you write with insistence and if you write with, with, a certain sense of passion and you write with a conviction that you have to articulate what you want to say is going to be, it's going to say something, it's going to add something new to the, the various polyphonic voices already in existence. So, I mean, how I generally write it is I say, okay, just, just say what you're trying to say and just try to articulate it well. And then for me, what that means is, so come to find out now I'm in my forties. Uh, I've, I've my whole life, I've, I've been a whole brained learner, <laughs> which has been really interesting, which means, and I just only discovered it recently when my wife was reading to me, you know, books about parenting, um, you know, left brain and right brain kids. But so for me, I think what writing is, I have to say it in a left brain fashion, analytically, I need to sort of break it down to actual parts with very kind of precise, almost mechanically streamlined definitions. But then I don't feel like I have any access to knowledge until I restate it right-brainedly in a creative way in which you can actually feel these things. And I don't know, maybe that's after years and years of teaching too, that you say something to students, all right, there are four principles I want you to know, and they'll all fall asleep. But if you say there are four principles of what I want you to know, and this is what it feels like to know these things, and then you create a world, you create an atmosphere, you let them look along the beam. Right. That's what I've tried to do in the book. And to my great delight, I, I also discovered that that was fundamental to Lewis himself. Apparently, Lewis was a whole-brained learner. And he thinks about that as well as so we, could, we could talk about it. But in case, once I've sort of you know, articulated what I want to say and said it well enough to you know, move the audiences that I have a chance to speak to, right? they think, okay, they start asking questions that I know I've, I've said something. That's when I enter into... That's when I enter into dialogue and that always makes my works so much better than I could have previously done on my own. But so for me, I think something like Chris Armstrong's book was, um, was, was helpful. He's just got a lot of great insights, a lot of hot takes. He's really intuitive at an end. And also he had access to some really good archival material. And so some of the, my favorite details in the book, I, I drew from uh, for Chris Armstrong's research. Um, but also the man who has taken Lewis studies by storm, of course, is Michael Ward and his planet <laughs> Narnia. Right. And that is, it's a, it's a beautiful book. It's deeply researched. He, he, you know, he's, his heart beats in tune with, with Lewis. 
Um, so I, I, those books in particular, I think I was, I was constantly, um, uh, drawing from, uh, uh, Marcus has a good book about Platonism and, uh, and Christianity in which he has a chapter on Lewis. So I think putting those things together, there's a good Cambridge companion on it. Oh, and I guess I forgot. Uh, my other favorite book on Lewis is the one I quote toward the beginning of my book on Lewis's list. That is the yes. author's that influenced Lewis. Yes. But I think that's, for me, I think I, I have to articulate what I want to say. And I have to say it well enough that I'm, I'm, I'm confident in what I've said. And then I, for me, I, I can enter into this dialogue with, with other voices and exchange and, and uh, borrow and modify what they're trying to say. I, I think I had, um, before your book, one of my favorite books for footnotes was Planet Narnia uh, from Ward, who the footnotes are just awesome. And footnote, are, yes. footnote chasing is tremendous. Your book is up there. I thoroughly enjoyed the footnotes. I ended up buying um, Lewis's 10, I forget the book, but uh, someone wrote a book. Basically, Lewis was asked in 1962 about his the top 10 books of his life, and he replied... And uh, I forget the man's name that edited the book, but but um, people wrote essays on each book and how they related to Lewis's life. Um, and, but I got that from you. Um, and some of the Boethius uh, footnotes, really, really one of the highest compliments I feel like I personally can give a book is is tremendous footnotes. So very grateful for that. Wow. That, well... I don't know if everyone, anyone's ever complimented me on the footnotes, but that, <laughs> that, that's deeply satisfying to hear. Thank you. It is awesome. I don't know. I think that does put me in a certain category of book reader that no one will relate to, but hopefully may, I, 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 my guess is you do. Um, if uh, One question. If, I, if, if we were to you know, put together a modern detox and you were to give four medieval texts to let's say like it's as modern as it gets like someone uh from their head to their toes filled with the modern juice and you wanted to get them on a detox what four medieval texts would you offer them that sounds amazing i want to i want to do this um, <laughs> well so i mean i guess we'll just set aside the whole painful question of whether or not our imagined audience has imbibed so much of social media and uh, TikTok and um, sort of what Deborah Lupton calls the datification of the self, that it just wouldn't, we'll just leave all that kind of sad stuff aside because <laughs> we could talk about that if we want to. Okay. But people who, people more like your listeners, people who are who have voluntarily got themselves in this situation willingly, right? Thinking, I love Lewis. I want more of this. And I want to drink from the fountain. How do I do that? Um, well, I think you definitely got to read Augustine's Confessions. Okay. Um, I think you've definitely got to read Boethius's Consolation. Yep. I think you've definitely got to read um, Dante's Comedy. Um, and you got to read all the way to uh, the end of Paradiso. And now for number four. This is where it gets fun. I think we have a number of candidates. 
Um, real, you could read real quick yeah. before you move on. When you mentioned reading all the way to uh, Paradiso, do you mean you just can't stop with with uh, uh, with hell? That's right. <laughs> yeah. Do you um, find that that happens often? Oh yeah, yeah. More often. I mean, why? Not, why? No, why is that the case? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, because uh, because modern American culture has uh, disdain for the classics, <laughs> and yet we uh, and yet we 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 know that reading classics is good for thinking skills. You know. Um, like, I mean, the justification I got for why you should study Latin was so that you would do better on your SAT. Right. And so, I mean, we know that they have value, right? You know, they, they make, give you thinking skills. Um, and so we want to inflict great books on uh, our students, <laughs> but we don't, but we don't believe, we don't believe that it matters much in the long scheme of things. So we like to give them little samplers, right? It's like serving a, you know, uh, coconut encrusted uh, shrimp at, <laughs> at at a party, right? It's just a little little taste. Anyway, I think I think that's what's going on. That's and also, paradiso, paradiso is really hard. You have to be you have to be dedicated to it. You have to. You have, well, I think the problem with paradiso is you can't just read it like you could sit down and read a novel. You have to study it, and so you have to bring you have to as the uh, the biblical passage. You have to gird up your loins. And come with a sense of intellectual seriousness to it, and I think you know that's that's difficult to to expect a lot of people to do totally outside of the I, classical education movement. Absolutely, I interrupted though. What what was going to be your fourth recommendation? Yes, well, this is the fun part and the hard part. Um, maybe maybe something by uh, the so-called Dionysius the Areopagite. <laughs> um, I'm just even uttering that name, I think makes most people suspicious. Yeah. But I think, yeah, something by Dionysus, the Areopagite, uh, maybe his, his book on the divine names in which he kind of describes this, this medieval cosmos, um, or maybe something by the writer Nicholas of Cusa, also known as Cusanus. Uh, he's got a cool little, um, short dialogue, uh, called the, uh, the search for truth or the, or the hunt for truth in which um, he, he gives this, I, I, I think, I think a vision of the world, which anticipates the best of, of modern ecology in which he says, if you know how to look, this world is an infinity of infinities by which I mean, you can conduct a type of spiritual meditation, which will, open up theological dimensions. Imagine a mustard seed, he says in this meditation. It drops to the ground. It creates a mustard tree. And then the mustard tree grows up. And then it, all those little seeds drop down and create as many trees as there are seeds. And then all these seeds sort of keep dropping. In your imagination, you could expand this and go on and on and on and on. Thus, in some sense, from the very mustard seed lies this kind of intellectual capacity of expanding a small thing into an infinity. And for Kuzanas, this is, this is deeply theological. This is one of those interesting ways in which the visible cosmos in which we live, if you look at it in the right way, it feels like it's under pressure, constantly hinting and gesticulating and gesturing to some sort of higher experience of, of beauty. So maybe some Kuzanas 
but I believe all of those are mentioned in the aforementioned uh, praise of footnotes. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Dr. Baxter, thank you so much for giving us your time. Everyone go get the book. Do you have a preferred place to go get the book? Do you have a website you want to send anybody to? I do. I'm just, well, I mean, just, I'm happy if people enjoy it. Um, um, yes, but if if your listeners would like to get it, and if your listeners want to go vinyl, as I jokingly say, and go indie, they can go to my website, jasonmbaxter.com, jasonmbaxter.com. And on there, I have a page in which they can click on it and buy it just for me. I sign it. I mail it out within 24 hours. And if you're lucky, I'll even wrap it in some sort of papers, which I've been using for my random notes. So the packing papers are pulled directly from uh, an academic library. <laughs> uh, that's probably not the appeal that you're that folks are <laughs> But also I'm, I'm really excited about the audiobook that IVP contracted um, with Oasis audiobooks to do because they managed to hire Simon Vance, which was a surprise to me. But when IVP wrote me and said, who do you want to be a reader? I turned to my wife and said, sarcastically, Simon Vance, and then didn't write back. And then no. four months later, they wrote me and said, oh, we just wanted to let you know that your reader is Simon Vance, who I think is, <laughs> I think is the best in the business. And so he, he, he's read the book so beautifully that I, I walk around and listen to it. And honestly, the, without any vanity, think, oh, wow, this is brilliant. <laughs> so it's been, it's been really cool to sort of like externalize this project and to be able to enjoy it from the outside. Anyway, so either my website, jasonmanbaxter.com or the audiobook's pretty amazing too, if your listeners prefer um, drinking and knowledge through the ears than opposed to the eyes. Awesome. Awesome. And you have other books. Folks can go to you for help to get through Paradiso if they need. And uh, thank you so much. I'd love to get a hold of that one and maybe we'll have you back on. Sounds great. Awesome. Thanks so much. Thank you so much, sir. Cheers. <laughs>